0: Let me ask you something. What is the value of medical humanities for medical education? Should it be optional in medical curricula, or at the center of it? My name is Mario Vein, and in this episode we will discuss the article Black, White and Grey – Student Perspectives on Medical Humanities and Medical Education. This is the seventh installment of the Philosophy in Medical Education series of the journal Teaching and Learning in Medicine. It's open access so you can read it for free. And it will also be published as a book chapter in the edited volume that Anna Cianciola and I are working on right now, which is called Helping a Field See Itself, Envisioning a Philosophy of Medical Education. The article is written by Madeleine Alding, Freya Rhodes, Phoebe Ross, Catherine McGarry and John Hamm. These are five prospective doctors at five different medical schools across the UK, and in 2020 they interrupted their medical studies to complete a one-year degree in Medical Humanities. Madeline, Freya and Phoebe are with me today, as is my co-host Christine Todd. Christine is Professor of Clinical Internal Medicine and Chair at the Department of Medical Humanities at Southern Illinois School of Medicine in Springfield, Illinois. Her interests in medical humanities are narrative medicine and using the arts to develop visual literacy.
1: Welcome, everybody. Could you each just introduce yourself, say something about your background and what interests you in medical humanities so much that you wrote a paper about it?
2: Yeah, so uh, I'm Madeline. I am in my final year at King's College London in the UK. And... Um, I've been interested in medical humanities more or less since I went into medical school which I know is kind of not most people's route of being interested in it but I my parents are museum directors I've always been around history and art and things in my kind of personal life and in my A-levels I did English literature and so I've always been interested in medicine and how it pertains to humanities um and I think I've been really lucky in that King's my university are a big advocate for bringing humanities into the curriculum and I started medical school in 2016 2018 2018 I think um and it was a brand new curriculum for my cohort Um, And part of that involved having more humanities in the curriculum. So it's kind of been something that was always there as an option for me. Um, And whenever I had the opportunity to do sort of student selected components or picking modules, it was something that I was always interested in. And in the UK, we have this option to intercalate whereby you Can choose to do a year in a subject that's related to medicine, but it's not sort of medical practice in the same way. So, your standard course is five years, and if you intercalate, it is six. And I always knew I wanted to do a humanities intercalation just because of my own personal interests um, and found a course at UCL, so also in London, in medical anthropology, and did that two or three years ago. Uh, So, that was my first kind of Proper exploration into the kind of academic side of humanities rather than doing it as sort of small components of my medical degree. Um, And this project and the paper that this podcast is based off sort of came from having found some like minded friends that were also interested in this kind of thing the idea that humanities is seen as this add-on subject but actually it's really integral to medicine if you use the skills and the language and the history and the things that you're taught about when you do humanities degrees um like in this intercalation uh and how that can impact the way that you look at clinical practice so freya who will introduce herself um shortly is a friend of mine from school we've known each other since we were 11 and uh we we both have this kind of interest in medical humanities. And then Phoebe, who will also introduce herself, and then the further two uh, authors of the piece, John and Catherine, um, our friends that we've made through university, they all are interested in this kind of thing from an academic, but also a clinical perspective. And we decided to write this piece because we'd really all enjoyed doing medical humanities for our installation and felt coming back to medicine that it was something that everyone really ought to be more exposed to it shouldn't be something that you have to seek out it should be something that is there from the beginning and that's really kind of what we were trying to get out with this piece was talking about why it's important and how it can be used in clinical practice in different ways um, throughout medical school and not just in an intercalation like we have in the UK, but in, in different ways. Um, so that's sort of how, how it came about for me. Um,
1: and how, how great to be able to publish a paper with your friends.
2: Yeah, it's, it's been really nice doing that with friends. We would have, uh, this has all sort of been written over the pandemic. Um, and we would sort of meet up in Zoom calls all in different places in the UK, like in the midst of lockdowns and have this thing that we would come and talk about, which I think was a really nice outlet for all of us as we were transitioning back into clinical medicine just to kind of keep this interest and excitement going. Um, and yeah, to do it with friends has been lovely.
3: So uh, my name Freya and I'm a final year medical student in Sheffield, also in the UK. Um, And I had quite a different route, I think, to find my interest in medical humanities throughout uh, school and um, college. I was a firm believer in the sciences. I avoided humanities where possible because I just didn't think I was any good at it. Um, So I I think I probably represent the more typical medical student on, on that front. Um, I just stuck to my strengths and picked the science subjects where I could. Um, When it came to to intercalating, as Maddie has already uh, talked about and described, I knew I wanted to intercalate in London and originally applied for um, courses on, I think it was oncology and molecular uh, medicine that I'd applied for. And as I was writing my personal statement, I just realised that I just didn't want to do it. Um, And so I decided then not to intercalate and it was only when I was on placement, I was on a paediatrics placement and I had a conversation with one of the GP trainees who was working on that that rotation about the medical ethics and the implications of um, paediatric heart surgery uh, that um he suggested oh why don't you why don't you intercalate in medical ethics and humanities and I said oh, I didn't even know I could do that uh, so I looked into it and there were a few courses available in London and I chose the humanities philosophy and law course at Imperial and that's where I met Phoebe and John and Catherine that's how we all came together in the end um and yes I really enjoyed the year uh, and I think that's what really motivated me to make sure that uh, medical students have have the opportunity to explore humanities earlier on uh, if not a mandatory um, (laughs) thing so that they don't uh, you know miss out uh, because I I would have done if I hadn't had that experience on placement Um, so yeah that's that's me and that's my background
1: Mm, thanks
3: Hi, um,
4: I'm Phoebe. I've got a really sore throat, so apologies for my voice. Um, but yeah, I'm a final year as well at Brighton Sussex Medical School, um, and I kind of more similar to Maddie. Throughout school, I was always quite interested in humanities, and I did humanities A levels as well. And I was very split before I chose medicine if I wanted to do like a humanities like career or or like medicine as my degree. Um, But obviously did go for medicine and then when it came to intercalation and choosing my intercalated course I definitely only really had eyes for the um more ethics or humanities based courses um and like Freya I went to Imperial to do medical humanities philosophy and law and yeah I think it was just such an interesting year and like again like maddie said like it's just meant that we've really come back to placement with a whole new kind of view on how we look at medicine and how we kind of experience it and i think like when i came back into my clinical placement i definitely struggled um with a lot of like other people around me not having the same appreciation for humanities or having the same like interest in certain things and I think it at a point when I came back to medicine it almost put me off wanting to carry on um but I think if we have this more like if we have this ability and this outlet to talk about medical humanities things it just like makes it so much more interesting and so much more meaningful um to practice medicine and I think yeah so that's kind of where I'm at with medical humanities um but luckily i I'm interested in medicine again now, as long as I can (laughs) carry on talking about humanities (laughs) alongside it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thanks. And Christine, thanks for being my co-host. And I think you're the perfect person for this interview. (laughs) Could you tell a little bit about yourself?
5: Yeah, I'm excited to to dig into some of this stuff. I've already written down more questions that I want to ask. So my name is Christine Todd, and I'm a professor of clinical internal medicine at Southern Illinois University, uh, which is in Springfield, Illinois, home of Abraham Lincoln. And um, uh, I also, and I'm the chair of the Department of Medical Humanities here at SIU. There are about, uh, about a third of medical schools in the United States have a Department of Medical Humanities. They're all very different. Some are very law and policy focused, some are very bioethics focused, some are quite focused on narrative medicine. Um, and, uh, uh, only about 10 medical students have mandatory courses in the medical humanities and and SIU is one of them. So that's one of the reasons I was here. I was here as a student and I really loved MedHume. And I'm really, really uh, happy to be able to carry on the tradition. Um, I have a humanities background. I went to college intending to go to medical school eventually, but I kind of wanted to leave becoming a doctor to medical school. And so I pursued a degree in English literature. I was in the creative writing program at the University of Chicago, but I also became sidetracked by a real interest in diaries. Diaries are this fascinating place where people figure out how they want to present what actually happened to them to some imagined posterity. And the the, the mental and intellectual stuff that's going on in famous people's diaries is absolutely fascinating. And I, I wrote a thesis about Joe Orton, the playwright. His diaries are extremely fascinating um, and sort of semi-absurd, just like his playwriting. Um, so that was the state in which I arrived at medical school and was confronted with head and neck anatomy. And I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> I, I wonder if I'm supposed to be able to do this. But I made it. Um, and, and had some of the same experiences of sometimes feeling like I really felt deep into the tradition of medicine because of my sort of additional understanding, especially around narratives. Um, and sometimes I felt very apart or even ostracized from the medical culture because of that same understanding. Uh, so that's, that's very interesting. And I loved your article and I'm really excited to talk to you today. Um, I think that you give voice to something a lot of students think about in medical school, which is, is this the experience that I uh, thought I was going to have? Is this the experience that's going to make me the best doctor? And is this the experience that is letting me bring my entire authentic self into this profession? Uh, And if it isn't quite, then how are we going to make it so? And I think the argument that uh, the integration of medical humanities is a much-needed dimension. Yeah, all right. So um, I have a question now that you've sort of all returned to full-time clinical, being immersed in the clinical uh, arena. Can you tell me about some of the moments that you've had where you're like, this is the perfect time when I can really show that this is biomedical meets humanities and it's both that are allowing me to provide a healing experience for this patient. How has it worked out now that you have additional knowledge in this area? I think there's certainly
2: been quite a few instances where I've had that but I'm currently on a placement in, in psychiatric intensive care and uh, so my intercalation is in anthropology so I did a year of anthropology and one of the big things in anthropology obviously by the nature of the subject is about looking at different cultures and understanding how your own culture is brought forward to any interaction but also understanding how that differs from someone else and that, that kind of thing and being able to recognize yourself as a separate agent to the person in front of you and I think for me uh, on my current placement I am surrounded on the ward by they're they're all men and they're all a bit older than me and I am a white British woman and a lot of the men on the ward are from like Afro-Caribbean descent but from from London and I think a few years ago, I might have gone into that situation and thought, "Well, what what can I provide to you? I have a completely different background to you. I don't my my set of life experiences that have led me to being here in this moment mean that how could I how could I ever possibly reach a kind of therapeutic understanding with you because our lives are so different." And I think through studying anthropology. And the humanities more generally, you come to realize that coming from a completely different background to someone actually is doesn't push you further away. It can, it can bring you together if you recognize those things. Um, so the the placement that I'm on, a lot of a lot of the people are really, really unwell uh, because it's psychiatric intensive care and have all these different experiences that I can't relate to because I haven't been through them, but I'm a I and more able to recognize the things that I have been through and the experiences that I've had at medical school and through the humanities and things to be more informed about the way that I talk to people um so that's kind of one that's ongoing at the moment um that's my current placement um but I think way back before having done this year of intercalation the the one of the moments that sticks out to me where I thought yeah this is this is exactly why medical humanities is important was we had a series of lectures about HIV and obviously a lot of it was to do with the virology and the drugs and all of these different things that we now have as treatments Um, but the lecturer made a real point of starting each lecture with a bit of background a bit of history a bit of understanding about ACT UP uh, how it had changed LGBTQ rights um, the changes that happened in America how Ronald Reagan was in involved in sort of FDA approval of drugs and that kind of thing and it really just hit home that as a doctor or as any kind of medical professional you have all of this knowledge imparted on you but it's there's been a million steps before it came to be that are actually really important to be aware of not necessarily for everything but particularly in HIV or those diseases or illnesses that often affect more marginalized communities it's so important to recognize the history and the context of these things um, and how that pertains to how we look at them now um so that was like before having really studied anything that much and then doing anthropology for the year and then coming back to clinical practice i think i'm constantly reminded of that when i i meet a patient whether they're from a similar demographic or completely different demographic, or I know that they have an illness such as HIV that is traditionally stigmatized or something like a broken leg that isn't, and it just makes you aware of, of what's going on and the, the context of each of these clinical encounters. And it, it does it does change your clinical practice. I think you just you're just thinking a lot more all the time about, okay, where do I fit into this and where does the patient's narrative fit into this and where does the kind of historical and social context fit into this as well?
5: And I feel like it helps you become unstuck in those areas where the biomedical approach only gets you so far and you realize that diagnosis, accurate diagnosis and treatment is not the whole of the experience that the patient needs. Mm There is a cultural, there is a historical, there is a um, economic narrative that's also going on and you have to know something about that or you can't get somewhere with the patient.
2: Exactly and I think in in all of medicine but particularly obviously I'm on a psychiatry placement at the moment um we have these tick boxes and guidelines and things that we you know you take a history you do a set of bloods you find out what's going on you form your differential diagnosis and you have a very clear management plan according to the books but that's not real life, and that rarely ever pans out that way with a real person in front of you. Um, particularly in psychiatry, and I mean, obviously on a psychiatric intensive care unit, a lot of these patients don't have capacity to make decisions about their care, or they don't have insight into the fact that they are unwell. But even on a sort of lesser scale, sometimes you offer a treatment plan to a patient that you think is, of course, they're going to want that, and they don't for whatever reason. And being able to appreciate that that. Is okay and there are reasons for that is something that I think the humanities is really good
3: at tackling. Can I just add something to that as well? I think that um, it's those are all really good things about having this awareness um I think sometimes though there is there's kind of not negatives but it, it makes you realize that you can't in a system such as the NHS, which is resource limited, you can't always give the thing that you want to give. And when you know that there is, um, you know, a, a treatment plan that might be be better for the patient or better suited to them, or there is a way that you can explore their experience that might be better for them, you are bounded by guidelines and tick boxes and time and money. And I think. Dealing with that is difficult as a clinician and something that should be spoken about more widely, I think.
4: Yeah, I think that's also one of the like massive factors that's like led to this increased interest in burnout and stuff as well, especially that's like everyone seems to be talking about in the UK, about how just the fact that we l- literally don't have the resources to manage patients how we want to, it's just so difficult. And like as Freya said, being so aware of what we could do or what we want to do does make that even more difficult.
5: You know, There's a fascinating thinking about um, these limited resources, which of course in the US is also a major problem, um, and uh, the inequity that that brings to a group of people who are trying to do something that would increase the equity in our society, you know, uh, help people with their health. Um, uh, one of the issues is that I think policymakers and other other governmental people also see medicine only in the sort of like biomedical realm. And the idea of you know, if somebody was housed that would help their diabetes maybe a lot more than the extra fancy new medicine is just sort of, we don't go there with our thinking. The question is we need more money for pharmaceuticals, we need more money for to reimburse doctors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a narrowness of, of thinking only according to this biomedical model whenever healthcare is, is brought up. So it's not just our students who need to kind of broaden their horizons, It's it's everybody who thinks about the state of healthcare, for sure. And in in these days when we're all increasingly isolated, I just think some of those things become even more important.
2: And I think there's there's a a reflection of that in some ways, certainly in general practice with the kind of advent of social prescribing and that kind of thing. And I think that's really positive, but again, it's like, we need to really build that into the, the systems that we have, or maybe overhaul the systems totally um such that you know telling someone that they the best treatment for them is to go for a walk in the park like needs to be something that we start thinking is normal and acceptable because i think a lot of patients would come to their doctor and be surprised to hear that what they're being prescribed is a gym membership or a membership to a national park or a national gallery or something along those lines. But actually, we know and evidence suggests that those things are really important.
5: Yeah, they're not unscientific. They There is evidence behind those. Mm. Yeah. yeah, But we've decided to, for various reasons, to um, that those are sort of soft things that patients can just decide to do for themselves. Mm-hmm. And we give up the power of our authority that we have in that clinical encounter to say, actually, this more than anything else could really help you, yeah. So I wanna to turn to the, pro- the issue of ambiguity because I think there's, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, you know, students who choose to focus on the sciences, and Freya, you talked a little bit about this, um sometimes describe their sort of conceptual black and white framework that's happening in the sciences even though any scientist would probably tell you that's not true but the way it looks like that as preferable to the ambiguity that shows up in read a Shakespeare play and write a write an essay about what you think about it so in your paper you actually suggest that the opposite might be true that the the real world of the humanities might impart a grounding that you actually can't find in science. So, how do we encourage and involve students who are very narrowly focused on factual science to broaden their worldview?
3: So, I think this is a very good question. Um, it's definitely something that fits very closely with my experience. Like I said, I was very science minded. Um, and actually, my so I spoke about how I, uh, my interest in medical ethics started. And I remember starting the course, the humanities course and our uh, lecturer said, what's every, everyone hoping to get out of, out of this year? And we all went around and said uh, our thoughts on that. And I said, I, I, I'm looking forward to the philosophy side of things because I'd like to have some answers to, to the unanswered questions and they were just like no you're not you're not getting answers and I was like oh no that's really sad and I was I was really disheartened by it and that was the science part of me being disheartened because I didn't know how to embrace the fact that there was no answer and I think have that journey throughout the year and by the end of the year being able to to accept the ambiguity and actually finding that there was a lot more to be learned in accepting the ambiguity definitely solidified you know the this point of view that you've described and part of why we wanted to write the paper. I think that in itself is a way that potentially students could be persuaded to widen their worldview. It's difficult though because I think you, it's kind of one of those things that you have to experience to, um, in order to have a belief in it, I think, um, but I, I, I don't think it takes too much questioning to um, encourage students to, to kind of look, be more introspective and think about where their um, thought process is not gonna go far enough. So for example, in our first philosophy session, Our um, tutor, he knew he was going to have a great session with all of us medics who were potentially (laughs) science minded and just asked us the question, what is a disease? And we all had to try and answer this, this question and initially came up with answers such as "Oh, it's a pathological state that is adverse to normal or something along those lines. And then he would say, well, what is normal? And then gradually the questions just got more and more difficult and we couldn't answer them (laughs) by the end. And then you realise actually, okay, it's not that useful for me to answer this question. And there's probably people out there who exist outside of what I think to be normal. But actually that normal is normal for them. And it's a simple concept, but it's not something I think it's something that goes it goes unnoticed a lot in medicine when you're so focused on jumping through the hoops and learning all of that content, that medical content, the anatomy, the physiology, that you do forget that there is kind of this human experience outside of that. Um, so I don't know if I've answered, answered the question completely, um, but I think getting students to be introspective and question, answer difficult questions, answer philosophical questions is one way of allowing them to realize the gaps if that makes sense
5: you know i I, it's one of those tasks that i don't feel like students are asked very much the first couple years of medical school because you just learn what's in the books yeah but you know the first time you tell a patient that they have a problem they're like uh, no i don't think so you realize the that's normal for me is not a just a question that gets asked you know what is normal is not a philosophical question. It's a real question that, that uh, it's a question about your identity that students, that, that, that uh, patients bring up all the time and you have to have some kind of comfort in, the, in that area or, or you take off an adversarial role in respect to your patient. And that's what I always tell my students, when you realize you're arguing with a patient, you should realize that you're doing it wrong. And you have to find another you have to find another way in that way. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. Yeah,
3: yeah, definitely. I think it's so important to understand that in order to be an advocate for patients, because you have to work out what what the shared goal is and, mm-hmm. you know, make it clear what you have to offer um but certainly like you say not not push push any kind of treatment plan on because that's what you think is is the right thing to do and having being able to accept that is you know it's going to make your life as a doctor a lot easier and it's probably going to make your patients a lot happier yeah absolutely
5: it's always easier when you're not fighting
3: yeah <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah yeah maybe what do you think what what are what uh What do you think about about coming to embrace ambiguity instead of trying to just not involve yourself
4: yeah well i think like obviously it's something that is just so important and i think trying to put patients into boxes is just can be so harmful for so many different ways especially with patients who aren't necessarily the classic presentation of something or like we're taught so much at medical school about the classic presentation of these things but actually they only really reflect either men or white people so much of the time and then marginalized groups end up kind of not fitting that presentation and therefore not kind of being diagnosed or managed in a way that's going to be really beneficial for them so I think like removing this these like preconceived ideas of like a binary in medicine is just kind of so important to like again like advocate for your patients and be able to reach a treatment that's going to actually help them or a diagnosis that actually fits their
5: presentation. I I agree I think that history of medicine which I didn't used to include a ton of that in in uh, um, the time I had with students but now I do because I do think examining the history of how we came to be so certain of certain things and then realized oh no that's that was very flawed for a lot of different ways is really important for medical students to realize and realize that they're part of this tradition that has some very questionable twists and turns.
4: Yeah, I think like being aware of the way we came to certain practices and the way that you know some medical discoveries, although are amazing, like the, the discovery of them in the first place meant so much harm for so many different groups. It's just so important to like actually use those on a day-to-day basis and kind of work in those fields as opposed to just going along with it and not having any idea of how these things came to be
5: it helps you understand the perspective that some communities have towards interacting with the medical system which was always i always like well i guess doctors are scary you know we talk about white coat hypertension uh, and i'm like no it's it's a lot Deeper and more significant than uh, authority figures make people nervous. It's that abuse of authority um, that uh, that really causes community trauma and intergenerational trauma, and that's a lot of, of a lot of what we see. So I have a couple of questions. One is about anthropology, and the other is kind of more about artsy artsy humanities. But um, how do you think? How can we connect the study of things like anthropology and history? to some of the things that are really kind of important in med ed today things like cultural humility allyship critical thinking how can how do we tie those together so I think anthropology
2: is a really good basis from which to tackle all of those things I think so I first came across the concept of cultural humility actually not too long ago when I first had the sort of medical school training on culture and how that impacts patients it was still very much under the guise of cultural competence which I think in the last few years we've sort of moved on from Um, but I was in a talk by Dr Kate Nambiar who is a sexual health doctor who specializes in trans and gender diverse healthcare, and she was talking about cultural humility and how important that is and it really it sort of resonated with me because I remember very well in second year the cultural competence class that we had uh being stood up in a circle with all the other students and uh given a bit of paper with something like you've experienced a teenage pregnancy or you come from a lower socioeconomic background or this sort of thing. And then you were asked to step in the circle if a statement applied to you based on the things on your bit of paper. And I remember at the time, me and the other students that were there like talking about this session afterwards and thinking, I so understand the point of this and what you're trying to achieve, but it just is so not, Getting it. Yeah. (laughs) We were all there like, we I, yeah, this stuff is really important, but the idea that because I've thought about the fact that you've experienced a teenage pregnancy are or are from a lower socioeconomic background does not mean that I understand that at all. It just means that I'm aware of it. Um, so I think this this evolution to cultural humility, whereby you're sort of recognizing that you bring your own socioeconomic baggage essentially mm-hmm. to any encounter is so important and I think anthropology is a great basis through which to look at that I think in some ways anthropology has a very uh, what's the word complex and problematic history of origin uh, it's obviously massively racialized and was came about in a a series of very negative interactions between anthropologists and essentially colonized groups of people Mm -hmm. um but more recent anthropology part of how it's dealt with that history is recognizing the positionality of the researcher um, and where they stand and your background and how that influences the learning that you get from speaking to people of other backgrounds and i think that's something that's so important in medicine you can't deny that doctors nurses occupational therapists whoever they are are people I have my own set of things that I've done in my life and experiences that I've had and backgrounds and so do all of you and all the people that I'll work with and I think this black and white sense of medicine whereby we follow the rules and we follow the guidelines forgets that actually we're all humans and we all have emotional and experiential reactions to the things that we're meant to be doing and I think anthropology is a really good way of looking at that um and sitting with that and being comfortable with that and seeing it as a strength rather than something to try and weed out there's and there's something to be said for being able to sort of remove yourself from the situations you find yourself in in a hospital because they can be emotionally draining but actually trying to totally disregard the fact that you're a person and they've affected you also doesn't really work um and then the the thing about uh the allyship and anthropology i think allyship is a really kind of interesting and popular term that's become more kind of common in like public vernacular i think particularly with sort of lgbtq allyship and certainly in the uk over the last couple of years we've had a huge huge rise in people publicly speaking out being allies to sort of the Black Lives Matter movement and that kind of thing Um, and I think the word ally is is similar in meaning in terms of medicine to sort of advocate essentially as as doctors we we are trying to understand and advocate for our patients and that's not too dissimilar to trying to be an ally to a a group of people or person that you don't personally have the same background or relation with and I think again anthropology is really good for that because we're looking at people and culture and understanding that I'm never going to understand it and that's kind of the thing that you need to recognize with anthropology is you can study one particular group of people or one particular social phenomenon for the rest of your life but ultimately you're never going to understand it if you're not the people in it and I think that's that's the importance of advocacy and allyship in medicine is I'm never going to understand everything that my patients are going through but I'm I'm aware of that and therefore I ask the questions and try and mitigate for the fact that I don't understand that um so it, it, it anthropology it does allow us to understand these concepts a bit better. And I think thinking back to the sort of second year university workshop where we were all stood in the circle saying, you know, I have alcohol addiction issues or I've had a teenage pregnancy. And we were all sort of thinking like, ah, I really want this to be helping, but I'm not sure if it is. I think if perhaps we'd thought more about it in terms of where we'd come from, And the fact that we are people bringing our own experiences to medicine, maybe that would have been more helpful. Um, So, yeah, there's there's so much in anthropology that's important in medicine. Obviously, I say that because I've done a degree in it. So I obviously care about it a lot. But I, I think you can't remove medicine from culture and you can't remove culture from medicine. And so they are kind of totally intertwined.
5: So Phoebe and, and, and Freya, I'm wondering about your experiences, particularly with philosophy and medical ethics, because um, those are two things that strike me that as soon as you get into the clinical realm, all bets are off. My students often say, well, I know the right answer to this ethical question, but then I also know what is actually going to happen in the hospital. And they're not the same things, um, and I'm not 100% sure why. What do you think the through line is from the sort of pure study of ethics and philosophy and how it can apply in the medical context.
3: Um, So I think about this quite a lot um, because I'm interested in the teaching of medical ethics, particularly to undergraduates at, at medical school. And I recently have been part of a working group that uh, is got colleagues from the General Medical Council and Medical Schools Council. And various academics uh, in the UK that teach medical ethics to medical students and we've all kind of collectively come together, based on the fact that we don't think it's working very well, Um, and we think that teaching medical ethics in the sense of you know the theoretical medical ethics, the four principles and uh, consequentialism and utilitarianism, that, those kind of theories, they're the things that you're taught at medical school and they seem really abstract and yeah okay you might be someone that's interested in that, I personally was someone that was interested in that and that kind of sparked my interest a little bit more further down the line. But you might just be someone that sees that as another part of medical school, another bit of content that I have to learn to pass my exam because it might come up in one or two questions. But realistically, if if there are two ethics questions in your exam, you could get the wrong answer to both of them and still pass the exam. And are we you know, are we okay with that? Does that mean that we're not producing ethical doctors? Actually, probably not because the questions don't tell you whether you're an ethical doctor. It just tells you whether you have revised the theory. So there's definitely an issue with the way that we teach medical ethics and the way that students take it on board and actually use it in practice. And we've spoken a lot in this working group about how we can improve things, certainly in terms of assessment. And one of the things that I personally am a big advocate for is reflective practice. Um, because I think that it grounds the theories that you have learned in your own experience and you understand the way that they might work a lot better because of that and you can you can understand it not just in the context of what is the right answer like you said, but actually what is the most realistic thing and what am I actually going to do So for example, uh, I was having a conversation with one of our one of the foundation doctors who is working um, as part of the working group as well. And she said that uh, she's working on um, a vascular ward at the moment, she keeps being asked to do group and save blood tests um, for patients before they go to surgery so that they can potentially be given blood if they need blood during surgery. And the hospital policy is that two different people take two different samples at two different times. Um, but actually that never happens um, and she was kind of reluctant to admit that but it just never happens and if you as a doctor kind of refuse to to take the two different samples or refuse to sign a, a sample that's perhaps somebody else has taken then you might be seen as difficult um, so in the exam obviously the answer is to to prioritize patient safety and stick to hospital policy but actually if you take two samples you've then got to go and bleed the patient twice that's uncomfortable for them it might affect your your um, relationships with your colleagues and that is a lot more important than we give credit uh, I think in medical school because it is really hard like talking about um, background as well it's you have to situate yourself in that um in that scenario as well you know as a woman a lot of consultants are um are male consultants and that kind of um power imbalance is very real thing and it should be should be spoken about and i think that um you know the the kind of ethical implications that go unnoticed um and aren't talked about are much are important and something that we should we should get into teaching, you know, that's something that we can get into teaching a lot better with reflective practice. So for example, asking a student to write a reflective report or share a reflective report verbally, um, using some of the the theories that, that we might have taught them. So potentially an ethical framework and say, did this framework work for me in this scenario? If it did, this is how and if it didn't this is how and maybe there's another framework that would work better so you're actually critiquing the theory at the same time and i think that gives you a much better understanding of of where the ethics has come from but actually how it's going to work in real life and how it's going to prepare you to make decisions as a doctor
5: so it's that application Yeah integrity around how that happens. It doesn't mean like you learn it from a book here and they just abandon that over here. Yeah. Uh, there there is an intellectual process in making that transition that's important.
3: Yeah. And I think it's a it's a lot harder as well than, than people think. And there isn't a right answer. Right. there certainly seems like there's a right answer when you when you um posit the dilemma as a question and it's there's multiple choice um but that it's never the case in real life there's never a right answer and actually the whole point of being in an ethical dilemma is that you're going to come out of it feeling like you've done the wrong thing because there's going to be good and good and bad on both sides
5: yeah yeah i do sometimes when we have the parts of our course that are about ethics sometimes see some of the peop- the students in our audience wake up because they're like now we're going to talk about right and wrong mm. finally And then when we get around to that, it's really about picking out the issues and then sort of prioritizing them because some of them are opposite. So you're going to have to say, in this case, I really think autonomy is at the top here for me. Here's why, blah, blah, blah. But there's tons of ambiguity and different people see it different ways. And then they're like, Slump down again <laughs> no there isn't a right and wrong
3: yeah that was me that was completely <laughs> me when I started out because I wanted the tools to I just wanted to feed in any situation into the the tool kit and come out with this answer but it's it's not possible sadly
4: there's um, an exam as well that we have to do in final year that the three of us have just sat um called the situational judgment test and it is essentially like these basically scenarios and you have to prioritize what's the most important thing to do in each scenario and revising for that was just so painful because it's just so learning a list of what the people setting the exam think is the most important thing to do and remembering that this one always comes before this one in order to get the right answer in the exam and obviously it's just so not real life and so just doesn't reflect normal clinical practice at all and I think that's really frustrating because that's them kind of trying to test are we say are we good ethical doctors but it's just such a flawed system in in trying to assess that and i just don't think there's not really amazing way to assess that based on just like a multiple choice question I think it's never going to work
5: no this is one of this is sort of maybe this can be my final question for you guys but you know one of one of the reasons I think that humanities is not explored that much in medical school is because how you assess it in a totally objective way is um is is what it all somehow comes down to um and uh the answer of, you know, do we really need to assess it? Do we need to assess it completely objectively um, is really tied to, well, then we can't have a lot of space for it in our curriculum. So what do you guys think about that? How can you tell when someone gets it in this arena? Um, and, And how do you think this should be assessed in students? This is, this is something we,
2: we, we spent a long time talking about as we were putting together our, our piece. And we haven't really come to any kind of sort of conclusion at all, um, because it's really hard and because often, and this is something that we explore sort of within the article, at medical school, when you have teaching about humanities, it's often interested medics. Or interested doctors or clinicians teaching the humanities side of things. And therefore, and very understandably, sort of borrowing these ideas from the humanities, but not necessarily it being completely fully integrated and it being, you know, a historian giving you history lectures and a historian designing the curriculum, or you know, a professor in English literature delivering a seminar and leading a discussion about something um so I think I I mean I don't know about the other two whether you have any kind of like clear answer but I think certainly the route into it I think in my mind is to try and be as interdisciplinary as possible I think the idea that medicine and the humanities are these sort of distinct worlds that are really far apart and should be kept far apart is is a flaw in the way that we approach it and actually getting insight from people that work in and study in the humanities and how they might think it best is best done in medicine I think would be a really good way to start thinking about it because we can hypothesize as medics or medical students or whoever we are as much as we like about the best way to do it but actually if we're looking at humanities and how we bring that into medicine maybe we should be looking to the humanities for those answers more than looking sort of within ourselves
1: yeah
4: i think it's often just so clunky the way that it's kind of intersected together and i just think that when when we did our course in london there was just they they taught us in so many ways that were just so different and like we were taken to museums and you know taken to art galleries and taught about people who like Monet had having cataracts by like looking at the like evolution of his paintings and how like how that can teach us about how to remember things about cataracts or how to kind of see the humanity and the like real person behind a disease and I think it's so fun and interesting to teach when you teach it like that but then actually assessing that or Having some kind of formal assessment for that in the way that we do for, you know, like biomedical knowledge is so difficult. Maddie said, I think that although it's so it's so nice to like integrate them and they really did that well in our course. And that probably was because it was taught by historians or philosophers. Um, And I think that just assessing that when we need to tick a load of boxes to graduate and be doctors is just so difficult, (laughs) there's no answer (laughs)
3: again. (laughs) I think that it's one of the things actually that Imperial did really well because they decided not to, they scrapped exams for us. Um, So we had to write a dissertation instead. Um, So it was a long piece of coursework and we had a really long time to do it. It was only 7,000 words. So it wasn't perhaps as long as um, the typical dissertation that you would write um but we had a long time to do it and we had complete freedom over what we chose and that was actually really really difficult but what it meant was we learned so much about the process rather than just being kind of spoon-fed and actually i think we got so much out of that and the the product that we had was was our assessment um but i think it 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 showed a lot more about our ability and what we'd learned than a short answer question exam about the content and about whether or not Monet had cataracts, because that's that's not the important thing. It's kind of what you've learned and what you take from that into clinical practice. The, the journey is the
5: destination.
3: Yes, philosophy <laughs> on on uh,
5: on uh, requiring students to get somewhere, but the value is in that in the getting there, not that at the end they take a test or have mm. a final. Yeah. I think I'm really just hoping my students understand that, uh, you know, in order to provide healing places and healing experiences for their patients, they have a ton of biomedical tools and colleagues, but there are these other resources too that work in parallel and that can integrate. And I'm just hoping that in their life, they keep returning to those wells to continue to become a better physician, you know, um, as well. And I think the older that students get, you know, you all are in a in a time in your life when I, I feel like everybody's still trying to figure out who they are and how they're going to move through the world and all those things. Um, but as that becomes more settled and you continue, then life becomes this iterative process. And what are the sources that you keep returning to to keep reaffirming what you are and what your purpose is. And and my hope is that some of my students realize that humanities is a gigantic resource for physicians to understand themselves and their patients and their societies and all the rest of that stuff. Well, I really appreciate all the thought that went into this paper. It warmed my heart that students were advocating (laughs) for the real real integration of a humanities Uh, program into the process of medical school. Um, I I think that we'll be hearing much more about this topic and continuing to work towards that as we think about what needs to be different about medical education. Yeah,
2: we're on a a five-person mission to ensure that's the case.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have a a big peanut gallery who wants to hear more and keep talking about it. That's for sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thank you all so much. It's been really a joy listening to this, and so refreshing to have students and a professor speak about this together. And yeah, I'm just left with, um, actually, my favorite part of the paper is when you write about something that I really recognize when I try to speak about humanities or philosophy in medical education, and the same is always, oh, but be careful, because Doctors are really practical people. We really have to focus on practice. But then in the paper, you write that, well, you know, asking those big questions, they're actually not opposite to, you know, being grounded to reality, keeping yourself grounded. Actually, they help you do that because, you know, when you're in, in the profession, well, we all know this term like professional identity formation. It's like you become a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. But it also means you become part of this ex- exclusive group um, yeah, you see the world through this lens, and I think what you discussed really shows as well that this is a way to to keep connected to society and to keep considering other ways of seeing things, whether it's like anthropological or political or historical or yeah, anything like that so yeah, I really appreciated that argument
2: yeah i think we were we were talking about this yesterday um about how when you're in a kind of obviously we're relatively junior to being part of the kind of medical field but you it it's quite easy to forget when you're talking to a patient and they give you x number of symptoms or blood results or whatever and that immediately points you towards some kind of diagnosis or management plan or whatever it's quite easy to forget that that's because you've had this intense level of training and that the patient in front of you or their family or whoever it is that's around you are not having that thought process and so then reminding yourself of that and then grounding yourself in the fact that you've got a person in front of you like providing you with this information that you have the tools to tease apart and understand but they have their own set of experiences that are really important within that is yes. just one one of the real kind of joys of medicine and it kind of firstly makes you realize how much work you've put in over medical school but it also it it reminds you why you're there in the first place which is yeah, a good feeling mm-hmm.
1: yeah well thanks again and I, I agree with christine i hope we will be hearing much more from you in the future
4: <laughs> thank,
5: thank you so thank you very so very much yeah <laughs> nice to spend time with you all today yeah you, and too. you
3: lovely to meet you
0: and thank you for listening you can read the article online for free because it's open access In the next episode, we will discuss another installment in the Philosophy in Medical Education series. It's called Because We Care, a philosophical investigation into the spirit of medical education. And because I'm running a little behind with these podcast episodes, the installment after that is also online already. It's called A Matter of Trust Online Proctored Exams and the Integration of Technologies of Assessment in Medical Education. You can find all of these articles in the show notes.